This episode contains explicit content regarding a child and may be uncomfortable for some listeners. The following podcast contains explicit content and is not suitable for all listeners. Authorities estimate incest occurs in over 10% of American families. Yet, only 20% of these offenses are reported. The crime often goes unreported because it is initiated by someone the child, usually a girl, loves and trusts. In cases of father-daughter incest, the daughter typically has low self-esteem and relates to her mother poorly. Incestuous fathers frequently have backgrounds of sexual abuse in their own childhoods, are commonly alcoholic, and are typically authoritarian, domineering, and unable to elicit the warmth and closeness they seek. A high-stress incident in their lives usually precipitates the first occurrence of incest. For over 25 years, a man repeatedly raped and abused his two daughters in Sheffield in South Yorkshire, England, resulting in seven children. He was finally convicted in November of 2008. This is the horrifying story of the Sheffield incest case. This episode will be a much shorter one today, mostly because there is no information about the perpetrator or his victims. And that is because there is a publication ban on naming him or his daughters. That's to protect their privacy and help them to move on without living the rest of their lives tied to this case. I could have done another case in its place with more information available, but I think it is important to tell these stories too, even if it's not as in-depth or not as informative, because the point is to share violence against women and girls in all its forms, to bring these dark cases to light, and to hopefully help others and to create change. Incest cases are the most difficult for me to wrap my head around. As I'm writing this episode, it's Father's Day, just by sheer coincidence. My father was the best man I knew. He was protective and loving, and he had the biggest heart, although he could also intimidate my boyfriends with ease. And he would have done anything in his power to protect me. And he did, right up until his death from lung cancer. So I cannot fathom a father causing so much harm to his child. But sadly, some do. Some men aren't fathers. They are monsters. Nicknamed the British Fritzel because of an eerily similar case in Austria, also brought to light in 2008, where a man named Joseph Fritzl held his daughter captive in his basement, 
even hiding her from his wife and pretending she had run away. Even going as far as to raise children from the incest rapes with his wife upstairs from where she was kept. I will likely cover this case in the future as it is absolutely insane. It's also been made into a movie which was based on it. And it's a really popular story within the true crime community, but I'd still like to cover it at some point just because it's literally mind-boggling to me, these cases. In this case, the man also referred to himself as the gaffer, and he was also called Mr. X. For the purpose of my podcast, I'll be referring to him as X. X was extremely abusive in nature first bringing that rage towards his wife, who ultimately left, also leaving behind her two daughters. Again, I cannot fathom a mother leaving behind her daughters, knowing what she endured at his hands, but nonetheless, she did. I'm not sure how long after she left the abuse began, but at just 8 and 10 years old, the two girls were raped for the first time. It's also stated in one article there was a son as well and that he too was beaten by X and lived in fear of him. I cannot find any other information relating to the son beyond this one article, so for the purpose of this episode I'll only refer to the two girls, but I wanted to mention the son as I did read that he was present also. The physical abuse and rapes were constant at first, occurring daily, and then easing off to every two to three days, according to reports. But there was even more than the rapes. There was psychological abuse, beatings, and intimidation. X would smear, quote, fake blood on the bedroom door to scare them and yell out their names in the night to make them fearful. He would push their heads up to a gas fire, so close that they'd be burned if they flinched or tried to move. He would keep them from school and hide them if there were any visible marks from the abuse, and kept up appearances of a family man, even going as far as allowing a photograph to be taken with himself and his daughter and two of his fathered children, pretending they were his grandchildren for a newspaper article about council housing benefits. Council housing in the UK is like community housing and welfare in the US and Canada. That's what I know it as, although I'm sure it has other names too. But this is where some of the outrage lies with people who learned about this horrific case. Because X was given a council flat, a government-subsidized first-floor apartment specifically to ease the living situation, as one of their children had birth defects and needed special care. His daughters were young when they began to have children, and they had multiple children each. You would think some counseling would have been provided, or a deeper look into the family situation would have been done. But instead, they fell through the cracks, and that allowed for even more abuse to continue. I'd like to take this moment to thank you for listening to my podcast. Femicide just recently surpassed 12,000 downloads, and I cannot thank you enough for your support. If you haven't already, 
please leave a review as it helps so much in getting my podcast out to a wider audience. And it really means so much to me as I'm just a small creator on this platform. The concept behind femicide is very close to my heart, and I hope through these stories we can shed a light on the abuse, violence, and sexual assault that women face daily. This podcast is 100% a woman-run operation. I write, record, and edit every single episode myself. And as I mentioned previously, I had brought on someone to help with some research on upcoming episodes. She may still be helping me in the future, but for now, I am the primary writer of all the episodes. So I research and write them completely myself. So to help support me and my efforts, I have started a Patreon account. If you aren't familiar with Patreon, it is a membership-based platform designed to allow fans to support and connect with their favorite creators. Sign up today online at patreon.com or via the Patreon app. And I'll leave a link in the show notes of this episode. As always, I will be donating 10% of all gifts received and memberships each month to various charities that help support women. The charity I will be donating to for the month of October 2022 is Black Women in Motion. Quote, Black Women in Motion is a Toronto-based, survivor-led, grassroots organization that empowers and supports the advancement of Black women, girls, non-binary, and gender non-conforming survivors of gender-based violence. We work within an anti-racist, intersectional, feminist, trauma-informed, and survivor-centered framework to create culturally relevant resources, healing spaces, educational, and economic opportunities for survivors, end quote. And please don't forget to share with your friends and families because word of mouth is the best review of all. The abuse was relentless with X taking pleasure from the pain he was causing, according to reports. He threatened the girls with their children, saying he would kill them if they ever told, and the girls believed him, as he had, quote, a one-second fuse, and would become violent at the drop of a hat. He would even beat the girls while pregnant in an effort to cause a miscarriage, X routinely caused broken bones, burns, bruises, and took joy in inflicting pain. The girls begged for him to stop, even offering him money from their child benefit to stop the rapes. But any peace was short-lived. The youngest girl stating, quote, He continued to beat me if I didn't do what he said, and I would get a good hiding. There was a look a piercing look, an evil look, end quote. The articles don't state whether the children were also beaten or sexually assaulted in any way, but given how he treated the two girls, I assume there was violence of some kind directed at the children too. But that part is unclear, and of course I hope that they were spared. And I also have no idea how old the children were when this story came to light. The girls were not allowed to take any form of birth control, and he continued to rape them throughout their pregnancies, which resulted in seven children between them. 
In total, there were 19 pregnancies between both of the girls, which also included five miscarriages, five terminations, and two children dying soon after birth. It's stated that the girls, now women, were in relationships with their own respective partners, which gave them the confidence to speak up and tell the truth. Again, I don't know how long they were with their partners, but I do find it interesting that they did have relationships and seemingly very supportive relationships considering the level of trauma they endured. I also find it interesting the father allowed this, and I wonder if he knew if they had moved out, if they had escaped his control, or if the abuse had continued up until they spoke out. It stated he was a very jealous and controlling man and would punish them for talking to any other men, and so I find that part a little bit unclear. But nonetheless, they did come forward and tell authorities what had happened. Of course, X denied all the allegations, but he was unable to deny the DNA results when it was revealed that he had fathered their children, and he was finally arrested for his crimes. The abuse is said to have continued for over 25 years, one article stating they were well into their 30s. X was 56 at the time of his arrest, and he was sentenced to 25 concurrent life terms, with a recommendation to serve a minimum of 19 and a half years, which personally, I think is lenient. X also refused to show in court, choosing to stay in his cell instead, a coward until the end. How did X get away with the abuse all those years? This was the question. An inquest was made into the doctor that X brought the girls to see and into Child Protective Services and Social Services, as it was clear that the abuse should have been spotted and that some inquiries into the girls' pregnancies should have been made, especially considering the miscarriages and terminations. The judge at trial commenting, quote, I can say that in nearly 40 years of dealing with criminal cases and 14 as a family judge, the combination of aggravating circumstances here is the worst that I have come across, end quote. Firstly, X moved the family around a lot, and although people did question the amount of children and that only X appeared to be present and no other fathers for the children were around, they didn't speak up. The doctor involved was actually suspended four years prior to the case coming to light due to not meeting minimum standards for not putting patients at risk. Further to that, the other doctors involved were blamed for not notifying authorities and for not sharing information between each other, which would have helped expose X's abuse. Child Protective Services were also blamed for not having set protocols in place and flagging the family when the pregnancies began. It is stated that there is new protocols in place that are more effective than when the girls' abuse began, and hopefully that is accurate. 
One doctor apparently pleaded with one of the girls to stop having babies by the same man. Of course, she denied it was her father impregnating her. But again, the doctor did not notify authorities to look into her well-being further. X also told the girls they would lose their children if they ever told, to further scare them into keeping quiet. A threat made real when one of the girls did call a children's charity hotline, and they could not promise that she could keep her children, and so the girl hung up. A spokesperson for the charity defended their response by stating, quote, It is critical we do not make any false reassurances to young people about what may happen. When a child decides they want to take the next steps in speaking out about their abuse, we will work with them and support them through the process, unless they are in immediate danger, end quote. The General Medical Council also defended the doctors, not reporting their concerns to authorities, and stated it was up to a patient to come forward. Quote, if in this case the doctor was concerned that a woman had been raped, then their first point should really be persuading them to tell somebody. It would only be a last resort to try and inform the police themselves because of the patient's confidentiality. End quote. As much as it's easy to look back on such a horrifying case and state what should have happened, I do see how some of the abuse could have been missed, but not all, especially considering the GMC's defense states women being raped, but this began with children, which should take precedence over patient confidentiality. I truly think the blame falls on child protective services or social services in this instance, as they were receiving child benefits and council housing, And if anyone could have made surprise house calls or coordinated doctors' reports and social services inquiries, I think it should have been them. As I mentioned, an inquest was made following X's conviction, and in 2010, the results were made public. Teachers, social workers, and even neighbors all expressed concern over the years, stating they were fearful of X and that the family lived in poverty and that the girls were not being taken care of, while also voicing suspicions of abuse. The review stating, quote, There was enough evidence to result in the three children being removed to be looked after by the local authority. There were numerous opportunities which were missed, individually and collectively. There was unrealistic optimism about the cooperation of the parents and the progress of the children. Where injuries were identified as non-accidental, the children were still not moved to a place of safety. The responses of the services were not sufficiently effective in protecting the victims, and they went on to experience years of physical, sexual, and emotional abuse, end quote. It's human nature to want to prevent abuse like this from occurring again, and to look at something like this and wish someone had been able to catch it sooner. I just wish someone had. The defense lawyer stating, quote, It must be inconceivable to those who have listened to this case that see these offenses have been carried out in this day and age in a so-called civilized society over such a long time and with such consequences, 
without them being reported or investigated. End quote. I'm going to finish this episode by reading out a statement from the two victims that was read after X's sentencing. I'm truly sorry this happened to them and that they had to endure such pain and from someone who was supposed to protect them. But I hope they are able to move on from this in some way and spend the rest of their lives experiencing joy, laughter, and love. Quote, Today, this offender has been sentenced to life imprisonment. His detention in prison brings us only the knowledge that he cannot physically touch us again. The suffering he has caused will continue for many years, and we must now concentrate our thoughts on finding the strength to rebuild our lives. We do not wish to comment further on the factors of the abuse we suffered and hope that answers will be found during the serious case review. End quote. I'm glad the review was made public and that the failures of the system designed to protect children was highlighted. So hopefully such atrocities don't happen again. Thank you for listening to the Sheffield incest case. I'm your host, Sean Marie. Join me next time for another story. <laughs>